0: Alrighty, so standard disclaimer, this is not my material, this is Vaughan Roberts material he wrote God's Big Picture, which is a fantastic book. I do have a couple of copies of it if you'd like to read it. Um, he also has videos and, um, if, um, yes, there is, there is one left. Um, there are handouts and things like that that you can use if you would like to and there's small group material that you can use for personal study if you want to. Um, but, yeah, it's got my flavour on it but it's all Vaughan's material so just um, don't, don't go telling people that I'm brilliant because... Vaughan is. Um, I'm brilliant for other things, not this particular material. Um, and this is also material that I prepared and presented for um, for my work. I work with Flinders Evangelical Students. Um, and so this is the kind of thing that the students receive. Tomorrow night I will be running a workshop on how to write your testimony. Um, and so this is, this is the kind of thing that we do with our students at uni while they're studying. Um, and, and we're able to do that as staff because kind and generous people like you um, get on board. Uh, we are paid as missionaries, so we have people who um, partner with us to release us to be on campus. So if you're looking for a missionary to support, I am indeed one in your very own city. Um, so yeah, so if you want to um, know more about that or get involved, just um, give me a hoy and I can let you know. I have email lists and Facebook pages and all that kind of stuff that you can join Um, or if you would like to just be more prayer aware um, then that's also another way that you can do that so yeah because student ministry is crazy and important and um yeah and tricky at these in these COVID times as is all ministry but um yeah trying to get to be where students are when there aren't a lot of students around and there are certainly no international students they're trickling back in Um, It's just a tricky place to be, but it's an amazing place to be as well. It's so exciting. So, especially when we get people like Lily, who only a year later, or two years later in Lily's case, rock up to uni, and um, they're on fire and they're ready to go and they want to learn. and um, They've got space and time and brain space, which is such a foreign concept for me. (laughs) They've got brain space to learn more stuff. Um, But, yeah, they're they're ready to go and, and excited to tell their friends, and so it's a really exciting place to be. But, anyway... A not exciting place to be is where we left our people last fortnight, because it's been a whole fortnight since we've been in God's big picture. So I'm going to test you out a little bit. Ian's got his notes out, so I expect all the right answers from you, Ian, but feel free to anyone who doesn't have the notes to um, to shout out. We are following... Three different ideas in God's big picture. We are talking about the kingdom of God and the distinctives of the kingdom of God is that they are God's people, yes, in God's, yes, under God's rule and blessing. Yep. So we're assessing each of the different eras of the scriptures through are they God's people, are they in God's place and are they under his rule and blessing? So that's, that's our sort of starting point. We are in part two of unit, well it's unit five, it's part two of the partial kingdom. So we have started in Eden with the P of the kingdom, pattern Look at you go. You are on this. The pattern of the kingdom, unit two was with the fall. Another word for died. Perished. Nice one. The perished kingdom. I'm going back to my notes, so I'm, I'm even cheating. Uh, part three is when Abraham receives the... Yes, the promised kingdom. And then this particular um, era of the Bible is the P... Not Passover, but partial, yes. So we've got part two of the partial kingdom. So we've already looked at um, that... God's people were identified as his people. He took them up out of Egypt and declared him, them his people and said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And they were under his rule and blessing. He gave them the law at Mount Sinai and um, he said, obey this law and I will continue to, um, you will continue to be my people. So then we've got the second half of the partial kingdom, which is place and king. So this is where we see them enter the promised land, and this is where we also see the beginning of the kingship system. Um, and so we're going to cover a massive whack of scriptures today. We're going to be running from Numbers through to kings. So it's, it's a big, big portion. So strap in. Here we go. So God's place from Numbers to Joshua... So, we've got the, if you've got your notes, we've got that little picture with the story so far. So, we've seen that we've, we've had the pinnacle in the Garden of Eden, we've had the fall where we've dropped right down to absolute base point and then we've seen this steady increase as people are being reunited to where they need to be as we've gone through Exodus and the law and the building of the tabernacle. We're on an upward trajectory which is very exciting okay so god 's place, so the promise that was initially given to Abraham um, was to your offspring, I will give this land um, from genesis twelve seven and that land is canaan uh, so and they know that they 're heading towards Canaan. We see the partial fulfillment of this in numbers to Joshua where but the, the thing that 's sad is that they 've had this high point where Moses has received the the law on the mountain and then he 's come back down again, and the people have they've got bored and got a bit restless and they've built this idol and they've started offering sacrifices to it and so they've literally just come out of Egypt they've just seen what God can do in parting the waters Moses takes a moment to spend some quality time with God and all goes wrong which must be what it's like pastoring a church Neil. You take a weekend off, and <laughs> you come back to mayhem um, and and chaos. Um, and so, so the story of numbers is a story of disobedience and delay, which makes me think of Thomas the Tank Engine. You've caused confusion and delay. Like it was just, it's sorry, I have small children. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst thing they could possibly do is cause confusion and delay. And so we have disobedience in de- and delay in numbers. So the grumbling begins immediately after they leave Mount Sinai. They sort of say, we would have been better off in Egypt. We would have, At least we would have been warm and well-fed. We would have houses that we could live in we were mistreated but we had food accessible to us so then of course God does all the manor and the rock and the water and quails and all these things he looks after his people really well but the people that better the devil you know stuff they're not quite sure where they're going and they think surely we were better off back where we were but they make this journey towards the land flowing with milk and honey um and uh and they send these envoys, so they send um, Joshua and Caleb into the land to get a bit of a recce of what's going on there. And um, and they come back and they say, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an amazing place. There are some people there already, but it's an amazing place. And the Israelites go, Whoa. we're scared of the people. We're, that's, that's no go. We're not, we're not going to keep going there. We're terrified of what's going on in there, that there are people that we would have to confront and so we would definitely be better off back in Egypt. So the problem is that that shows such unbelievable ingratitude and unbelief. Moses parted the waters because God gave him the capacity to, to rescue them from Egypt. They'd just seen 10 plagues and the Passover happened. They've just had the law given to them on Mount Sinai and they've gone, oh, there are some inhabitants, we don't want to go in there, even though it's the land that God has promised them. They're not trusting that he's actually going to give them victory over these people and that it's actually going to be okay once they get there. And so because of that incredible ingratitude and unbelief, God says, well, that's it. Only Joshua and Caleb will live to enter the land. So instead of a journey taking just a few months they took 40 years to wander the wilderness, basically waiting for the last one to die out. So the only Joshua and Caleb would be the living members that had um, that would enter the land. So when they get to the plains of Moab, which is just the other side of the Jordan that's overlooking Canaan, which is now modern-day Israel, they're on these they're higher up, sort of separated by by the River Jordan. That's the beginning of um, Deuteronomy. And we see a whole series of blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. And we get Moses' farewell sermon, where he pleads with the people, don't do what we did. Don't make the same mistakes as us. Trust the Lord your God. So he says in Deuteronomy 28.1, If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands... I give you today. The Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. If you obey, you will receive infinite blessing. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Deuteronomy 28, 63 says, Just as it pleased the Lord to make you prosper and increase in number, so it will please him to ruin and destroy you. You will be uprooted from the land you are entering to possess. So Moses is saying... You've seen, you grew up wandering the wilderness. Don't do what we did. Trust God. He is good. This is His promise. He wants to fulfill it. So then they enter the land joshua leads them in and we have conquest and uncertainty is the theme of joshua so israelites miraculously take possession of the land they do the walking around the walls seven times at jericho and the trumpets and the walls fall down and huzzah and we know that story because of sunday school and um and so um joshua 21 44 to 45 says once they've done that and they've taken over a few of the other um people groups in there and the cities. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their ancestors. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord gave all their enemies into their hands. Not one of all the Lord's good promises to Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. What an incredible thing to be able to write. To say that when you are at battle, invading a country, which, given today's politics, would be seen as fairly negative... (laughs) God wanted them to do it, Um, and we we know that God is good. Um, So they miraculously take possession of the land in a number of ways because that is God's intention for them and for that land. And so we see that God's kingdom has established. God's people are in God's place, and they're still under his rule and blessing. They've got the laws. They've been been carrying the, the tabernacle with them as they go. And again, at the end of Joshua, we have a second farewell sermon as Joshua is on his deathbed. He also gives a hefty warning. He says, all will go well for you if you continue to follow God's rule and and you will be blessed. However, if you don't keep his rule, you will not be blessed. And so there's this big question mark that hovers over the end of Joshua. Will they keep the covenant and prosper or will they disobey and be expelled? So we see in Joshua 23, 12 to 13, Joshua says, but if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry with them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps for you, whips on your backs and thorns in your eyes until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. So big warnings. But then we move into Judges to Chronicles. And this is where we focus on the God's king part of the promise. So... You might remember, because we hashed it quite a bit, that in um, in Exodus, sorry, in Genesis 12, when um, God gives Abraham the promises, that there's no mention of a king specifically by name. So it wasn't promised, particularly in the Abrahamic promise, but elsewhere we see these promises come through that there will be a leader of some description um, to to lead the people of Israel so we've got the serpent crusher that we saw in genesis chapter 3 in the curse that there will be one who will crush your head um, uh, and will defeat satan and the question has been since that point who is that going to be um it's not been any of the leaders we've seen so far because they're not where they're meant to be they haven't been returned to that eden like pattern that we saw um in genesis forty-nine ten, um it's mentioned that and i think i've got it here yep The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nation shall be his. So we've got a descendant of Judah that is going to be the one who has um, the obedience of the nations. Moses also, as part of the law given in Deuteronomy, um, talks about um, a king that will rule under God and give some warnings about what that king should not look like, um, but it will be somebody who reads the law daily um, and seeks to lead his people under God's authority. And that's from Deuteronomy 17:19, uh, which I do have. Um, the word of the Lord is to be with him and he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees. And that would qualify him to be a good and um, true ruler, um, and a king is the subset of his promise of god 's rule and blessing so god's rule in his rule God rules in his kingdom through his king, so it's an intermediary, a human person that can um, that can interpret God to the people and represent people, the people to God um, and so so this kingship is kind of implied though it's not necessarily specifically um, sort of promised to Abraham but it's certainly promised throughout the rest of um, the Old Testament so the partial fulfillment of God's king comes in Judges to 1 Kings 11 Um, so um, Judges though if you've ever read Judges it's quite it's quite depressing reading Um, it's just a cycle of sin and grace Um, so we've got the cycle Judges 3 7 to 11 Um, this is where it's spelt out. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. The anger, the anger, the anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of Cushan rishathaim king of Aram Naharim, to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. The spirit of the Lord came on him so that he became Israel's judge and went to war. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim, king of Ura Aram, I should have practiced this before, into the hands of Othniel who overpowered him. So the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel son of Kenaz died. So you had this constant cycle of sin, judgment by God and destruction. They cried out to the Lord, he showed mercy, he raised up a judge to lead them out of the situation and then there was peace, normally until that judge died and then the whole process started again. The problem is identified in Judges twenty one twenty five, as in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. So the priestly system was set up. There was sacrifice that was being given to um, the, on the altar to the presence of God in the tabernacle. But there was no one to actually unify and lead the people um, and to, to be the one who was re- like reading the scriptures daily and communicating that to the people. Um, so... And the people recognized it and God knows it. So in 1 Samuel, we get the, a false start. We get the first king. Um, Samuel is the last judge and it's his responsibility then to anoint the king. Um, and part of, what is, um, part of what is problematic is that when the people come to Samuel, they say, You are old. This is one Samuel eight five. You are old, and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Now, asking for a king was not the problem, because God has always intended that they would have a king. What was what was the problem is that they they said that they wanted a king, such as all the other nations have. God himself was not enough for them, they wanted to be just like everyone else. So despite the fact that they were distinctly different, they had been called God's people, they were circumcised to indicate that. They lived apart, they had a whole sacrificial system, they were supposed to avoid all the Baals and the Asherah poles and all those sorts of things but just like every other nation they wanted a king. They wanted a king to be able to broker peace deals and um, lead the army and make sure that politically they were in a safe, position and so God was angry because of their motivation not because of their request so he gave them the king that they asked for he gave them Saul the giant man the um, powerful and charismatic man he was anointed he was rejected because eventually he went a bit mad just to put it lightly David was anointed he came and he fought Goliath and we expect that he will be then because Saul is going on this crazy power trip and throwing liars at people and um, particularly David and creates this whole sort of anti-David sentiment and so David is forced to flee we expect him to take the throne he's been anointed by God he's been sought out by God then sought out by Samuel and he's been anointed and we expect him to take the throne but Saul has his did I say anointed by Saul I meant anointed by Samuel Um, and then um, but Saul has his own agenda and so he runs David out of the kingdom and it's not the only time that we see the suffering and rejection of a king before they enter their glory. So we've got David, anointed, forced to flee before he eventually becomes a king after God's own heart. And then it's only after rejection and suffering that the Lord's king enters his glory in the person of Jesus. There are so many parallels all throughout the scriptures pointing forward to Jesus. We just need to see them and observe them so once we've finished one samuel we enter into two samuel which is the point where saul dies and david enters um, the kingship and the reign of david is one of peace and prosperity he uh, builds the temple Um, yes no solomon builds the temple david builds the palace yes so he builds the palace. So it's a set, uh, uh, an indication that we are here. We are in the land. We're no longer using tents to live in. We are in established places, um, and and the whole region is in under great peace. And any any war that they might enter into, they receive victory. They're obviously at war when David sends. Bathsheba's husband to the front line to ensure that he dies. And so we see that there is peace and prosperity, but also David is flawed. He commits adultery, he then makes sure her husband dies so that his sin is covered up. This is on a side note, this is one of the things that makes the Bible such a fascinating book to read because. David is the king that is the pinnacle to this point and up until Jesus returned or Jesus was born he was the king after God's own heart he was the poster boy for what it is to be a follower of God and to lead people and yet we have this story of his epic failure and that never happens in any other history book about a king you only ever hear about their conquests and their victories. The true humanity of a king is rarely represented in ancient texts. <laughs> it's one of the reasons our Bible is unique. <clears throat> I'm nearly finished. All right. They're just super keen. Oh, I see. Oh, you need shoes, Theodore. Righto. I did suggest that, but, you know, what would I know? Um so from that we see in 2 samuel 7 verses 14 and 16 uh, we see that there is still one to come we know that david is not the one that god was talking about that would be the serpent crusher um because he is flawed um but there is one to come so 2 samuel says i will be his father And he will be my son when he does wrong. I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Um, And throughout the Psalms, we see that David talks about my Lord. um, When as he's the king, um, there shouldn't really be anyone above him. But he's certainly talking about um, the Lord that is to come. So, but we do have promises. um, Obviously, God promises to David too um, that he will be a son of yours. Um, and the son of God so because of David's um, kingship and his um, his faithfulness to God that there will always be a son of David on the throne and that the ultimate serpent crusher would come in his line so we then enter 1 Kings 1 to 11 and it starts on such a high note because Solomon the first son of David inherits the throne and we see this golden age of Peace, prosperity, prosperity like we have never seen before. Um, And the question around it is, is he the one? Because he's the one that then gets to build the temple. So then God is establishing his permanent presence amongst the people. We've got all this sort of wealth and wisdom and because, you know, he was such a a clever guy to ask for wisdom and then God says, because you ask for wisdom, I'll give you wealth as well. Um, And so we see this this incredible king who seems to be abundantly blessed in every direction. We see promises fulfilled in 1 Kings 8.56, so the prayer at the opening of the temple. Praise be to the Lord, who has given rest to his people Israel just as he promised. Not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Again, what an unbelievable thing to be able to stand and say not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses such a high point but then the thing that um I always find quite interesting because you know God's a clever guy uh Deuteronomy I'm trying to remember if it's 12 or 17 it's 12. 12. Well, 17, should have looked this up earlier, the king, this is the description, back in Deuteronomy, back when the law is being given before they've entered the promised land, this is what God says to them, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it and you say, let us set a king over us like all the nations around us, it's amazing what he knows, what his people are going to do, Be sure to appoint over you a king the Lord your God chooses. He must be from among your fellow Israelites. Do not place a foreigner over you, one who is not an Israelite. The king, moreover, must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself, or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them, for the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. When he takes the throne of his kingdom, he is to write for himself on a scroll a copy of this law taken from that of the Levitical priests. It is to be with him. And he is to read it all the days of his life so that he may learn to revere the Lord his God and follow carefully all the words of this law and these decrees and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants will reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. So we've got these warnings and blessings And then when we get to 1 Kings, I may have to give a pricey. Uh, we talk about Solomon's splendour in chapter 10. The weight of gold that Solomon received yearly was 666 talents, not including the revenues from merchants and traders and from all the Arabian kings and the governors of the territories. Then the king made a throne covered with ivory and overlaid with fine gold. The throne had six steps and its back had a rounded top. On both sides of the seats were armrests with a lion standing beside each of them, etc., etc., Nothing was made of silver because silver was considered of little value in Solomon's days. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea along with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years it returned carrying gold, silver and ivory and apes and baboons. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew at the current price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Arameans. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidianites, and Hittites. One of my lecturers used to always throw in Vegemites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done. It's like he'd written, like, not one word has failed of all the good promises he gave through his servant Moses. Like, it's not only the good promises, but also the warnings. They have all come true, like, almost word for word. It's like, Solomon, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to have the wisdom of God. And even that can be corrupted when your heart is not in the right place. And so, unsurprisingly, when he's deliberately gone against every just, and probably slowly and insidiously, just, you know, one wife here. because You've got to accumulate them reasonably quickly when you've got 700 and 300 concubines. But, you know, like you just, you get a couple of horses over here. And a bit like um, when people say, if, if people ask you, how much more would you need to earn to be completely happy and apparently the amount roughly is about $12,000 people reckon if they were $12,000 better off they would they would be that much happier they could just do that little bit would be easier and it does it, then when you come back to them in five years time and they're actually they've had pay rises or whatever or inflation or whatever and they're $12,000 better off you ask them again and apparently $12,000 I reckon I just had an extra 12 grand amazingly it probably works out to somebody's A new car every two years or you know like it's one of those things that you know there's there's something on your list it might be school fees that cost you 12 grand for a student or whatever like it's just one of those things that you go if i just mortgage repayments for six months i don't know i don't know (laughs) maths and mortgages is not my strong point i don't think twelve thousand would get you very far but maybe it would i don't know (laughs) here's me talking about my expert topic um so, so there's always that kind of just a little bit more, just a little bit more, just a little bit more and the wisdom that starts out being really beneficial actually ends up biting in the bum because then people are coming to you from all over the world to seek your counsel and your guidance and you then are elevating yourself because suddenly you are the guy that everyone comes to. But you're just supposed to be one of the people representing God to them and them to God. And so the question when he started was, is he the one? He's so blessed. We're all doing so well. Look at our city. It is paved with gold. And we've had the prayer, but God, the king turns from God and God turns from him. He is kind and reserves judgment until after Solomon's death. But that judgment is swift because as soon as Solomon dies, his two sons fight over the kingship and the 12 tribes of Judah that have made up, 12 tribes of Israel that have made up the one kingdom are divided in two and never reunite again. We will talk about that more next week. But um, what we see... Up until this point, God's people are the Israelites. They are in his place in Canaan. They're in the promised land. They are under his rule and blessing. They have his laws. They have the sacrificial system where they can be made right with God. They have his king. And we see that it can be great. There were some really high points in amongst that with David and with Solomon but like any toy that we've had as a kid that's normally a model of something else, model plane, model car, dollhouse, doll, so many of our toys are just smaller reproductions or in the case of dolls, lifelike reproductions of, of things that are so much more than you can capture in a model. Like model planes are fun but they don't really do anything unless you've got like a remote control one but even then you can't get in it. Like a model points to something bigger and better than itself. So does this partial kingdom. We're just seeing a glimpse of what it could be like. Um, but it obviously has the capacity to go wrong. So, next one is called the... Can anyone, does anyone want to take a stab, a stab guess? We're looking at um, Prophets... So what could be the type of kingdom? What was that? Not promises? You've looked ahead, Ian. I can see you being sneaky. If we've got prophets, what do they do? Yes, prophesied. So we've got the prophesied kingdom next week. So hold on to your hats because that will also be a good one. Um, Let me pray and we'll go from there. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its intricacies and its constant pointing forward to your son. We thank you for the comfort that we can read in it, that you are faithful to your promises, that you see them and make sure that they are fulfilled in the time that you have given them. We thank you that you called a people to yourself that you loved them, that you persevered with them, that you gave them opportunity after opportunity after opportunity. And when they cried out, no matter what they'd done, you rescued them. You gave a way out. You gave a way to be returned to relationship with you and to peace and prosperity. Lord, we confess that we are not so different from the Israelites. When we cry out, you are present with us. You smooth the way. You hear our prayers. You inspire us and you lead us on. But so often, we do just as the Israelites did. We go our own way. We do things in our own strength. We actively decide not to listen to you. We choose to ignore your word. And yet every time we come to you, you open your arms and you welcome us back in. And we know that that's because of Jesus. We thank you for the privilege of standing this side of the cross. We are not left wondering anymore, who is this man that is going to come? How's it going to happen? What's it going to be like? Your word shows us. And we can take hope and heart from that. So we ask, Lord, that as we go into this week, as we inevitably choose our own path, as we inevitably make choices that that deny your sovereignty, that you would remind us by your spirit, gently guide us back, or in some cases probably more obviously guide us back. And we thank you that we can come back to you knowing that you are open to us, that you love us, and that you're ready to forgive us and move on. We thank you for Jesus, we thank you for your spirit, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you've seen fit to communicate and give all those things to us. What an honour and a privilege. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.